what extent do we have free will? Why does climate change feel ideological? Will genome data collecting test the limits of surveillance? Is it possible that our intuition has been hacked? This is Through Conversations Podcast, where curiosity goes from the human genome to the cosmos. We'll talk with the most brilliant minds that focus on answering all of these questions and many more. This is Alex Levy. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I am very excited to share with you my conversation with Steve Oldham, the Chief Executive Officer of Carbon Engineering, a Canadian-based clean energy company. Carbon Engineering is focused on the deployment of groundbreaking direct air capture technology that captures carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere so it can be stored deep underground or turned into clean transportation fuels. Steve brings more than 20 years of executive experience to Carbon Engineering's team, stemming from previous positions in technology, robotics, and aerospace sectors. He has played a lead role in a number of Canada firsts in technology commercialization, including the first robot performing brain surgery, the first commercial radar satellite, robots that clean the inside of nuclear reactors, and satellites that service and repair other satellites. Steve holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics and computer science from the University of Birmingham in England. This conversation comes at a time when the pandemic has hit us hard and it has grabbed everyone's attention. Still, climate change is perhaps the most pressing challenge we must face as a species in the long term. We touched on very interesting topics, including Steve's trajectory, his vision for the long term, and how carbon engineering is impacting positively in it, the cost of addressing climate change today, and much, much more. It is a great honor to introduce to you Steve Oldham. Hey, I'm here with Steve Oldham in this edition of Through Conversations podcast. And, you know, climate change has been in our minds for a long time, but right now, given the current crisis with the pandemic, it seems to be off the sides. So I'm very honored to have you here in my podcast, Steve. It's a privilege to be here, and uh, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And I, I would like to talk with you about, you know, tell me about yourself. How did you become interested in climate change, and how how's your trajectory been unfolding until today? Sure. So as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm British. <laughs> uh, I come from Manchester, um, and I moved to Canada in 1996, um, starting off as a software engineer. And then I, the first part of my career was actually in space, um, working on satellites and uh, financing uh, large satellite programs, which are expensive, require a lot of money. Uh, and I, uh, I worked at a company called McDonald Detweiler, uh, doing that for the best part of 20 years. Um, the opportunity to move over to carbon engineering came to me. I was asked if I would be interested in applying for the position. And as soon as I looked into the company uh, and what it was doing and the mission of the company, it was really clear that this was something that I just had to do. Um, you know, I have I have kids. I I look around and I see the 
growing but silent impact of climate change all over. And I think my generation and the generations before me, we have a responsibility to pass on the planet in just as good a state as we found it. And uh, climate change, and you know, you can look at the uh, the parallel of the coronavirus. Um, climate change has crept up on us, unaware, if you like, but will have a massive impact on our way of life. So when I saw what carbon engineering could do, it, it was just a, a no-brainer for me to 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 take the position and and try and do my best to bring the bring the technology to market. Wow! And yes, as you mentioned, climate change is some sort of crippling normalcy, right? We we don't see or we still haven't seen the immediate impact as a, you know, as a pandemic that we're seeing right now, everyone's in our, in, in their homes. And that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Working in climate change. So how do you remind yourself that your endeavor is one that is for the long haul? How, how, how are you keeping a mindset to bring yourself into work every day, knowing that your work is, will become fruitful in the long term? So um, that's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Um, so I think I, one of the key things. So if I if I take a step back, when I when I joined the company, uh, the company was was not particularly well known, and the technology was not particularly well known. And one of the top priorities that I had was to increase the public awareness of what we do at Carbon Engineering and how the technology could benefit climate change. So. We have done a lot of work in the in the public relations domain. Mm. Um, we've done TED Talks. We've done lots of articles. We've done videos. We've really worked on education. And so the reason I'm saying all of that is because it's through connections with people like your podcast and the people who go see the TED Talks, the people who comment on our YouTube videos, uh, and the people who come to us and say, We're, we really appreciate and recognize what you're trying to do. So that allows all of us in the company to, to stay focused on that. Inside our building, um, we have a, a notice board where we, we pin up uh, letters, emails, notes that we get from people around the world um, who've seen what we're doing and, and want to send a message back. So that really helps us with the long-term focus. Um, this is a long-term project. Uh, it's, um, it's something that will take good amount of time to bring to a truly global impact but things like that the interaction with people really helps wow that's that's a an answer i didn't expect to hear because you know for for me it seems that on this side of the of the conversation not in the inside as as you are in carbon engineering it seems that you know collective action is one of the things that has you know the biggest the biggest take on how do we deal with climate change and just listening that you have feedback from people. It's encouraging for me as well. And going into, you know, the long term. So talk to me about, you know, the specifics of, of direct air capture. How, how does it work? And if I'm right now in Mexico city, the altitude is very high. Would it be the same efficiency here than in Miami, for example? Yeah, so let me let me maybe start uh, right at the top level about why direct air capture, why does it make a difference? So direct air capture pulls CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. And um, we hear a lot of talk about we have to control emissions. 
And that is important. We do have to stop emitting. But it's really, really hard for every single source of CO2 emissions on the planet to be stopped. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to collect all that CO2 from literally billions of separate emitters. So what Direct Air Capture does for you, it gives you a tool to stop any emission from anywhere on the planet and any moment in time by pulling the CO2 emission back down from the atmosphere again. Oh. So, for example, you, if we decide, I, uh, I won't pick on a particular country, but if we decide that we can't decarbonize the use of fossil fuel in a particular location, because there's no other alternative sources of energy there and the people in that community need energy for their way of life. Um, Instead, do direct air capture and eliminate their carbon footprint by capturing it afterwards. So that's the fundamental value of direct air capture. Any emission anywhere on the planet, any moment in time, including yesterday's emissions and the day before and the day before that, we can clean all of those up. And there's really no other technical solution that allows you to do that electric cars are fantastic but they don't decarbonize airplanes or agriculture or steel making it's just one source of emissions that they um they decarbonize so that's the fundamental value of direct air capture there's uh two uh types of technology to do that in the world one is to use a solid absorbent where you absorb co2 into some kind of solid think of like a sponge yeah and then you replace the sponge Um, Our technology is to use a liquid, a chemical liquid, rely on chemical reactions, and then we regenerate the chemicals that we use as we uh, go about the process. So we don't have to replace the sponge. And and just to come back to your your question about location, CO2 in the atmosphere is, is uniformly spread. So it really doesn't matter if we locate a plant in Mexico City or in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, with atmospheric winds, you're, you're pulling the same amount of CO2 to, to, a, non, to a non-significant factor. It really doesn't matter. Wow. Wow. That's very encouraging to hear. And, you know, as you say, creating liquid from CO2 sounds very, very futuristic. Like, you know, I imagine Star Trek doing that, not... not you know, using it for gasoline, for example. So how how does it work? You know, I can use CO2 to fuel my car. Is that is that feasible with carbon engineering? So no, what you um so fundamentally when so once we've captured CO2 from the air, um you can combine it with hydrogen. And when you combine CO2 and hydrogen, you make a hydrocarbon. And hydrocarbons can be kerosene, that's jet fuel, yeah. it can be diesel, it can be gasoline. So when you make that fuel from uh, atmospheric CO2, you're essentially recycling its carbon footprint because the CO2 was pulled out of the atmosphere in advance. When you drive your car, you produce CO2 and up it goes into the atmosphere. There's no no way for it to come back. What we do when we make fuel is we take your CO2 emission in advance, make a fuel, and then when you drive your car, You put the CO2 back and we pull it back and make more fuel again. Hmm. So it's a, it becomes a circle. Wow. And I'm, I'm trying to, just because, you know, if I'm being fully disclosed here, I'm such a big fan of, of, of you and carbon engineering. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate for yeah. a second. Would it be possible to, you know, take too much CO2 out of the environment? Is it, you know, would it be negative to take too much CO2? I mean, 
so to to remove enough co2 to just bring us back to sort of a one and a half degree scenario is a colossal amount of co2 so we shouldn't kid ourselves about the scale of the problem so is it theoretically possible that we could remove too much co2 sure but it would require an enormous number of plants running for many many years and one of the good things about direct air capture is if if you think there's a negative impact you just turn it off you turn the machines off um, and you stop the problem so unlike you know some of the solutions proposed um, for some of the more um, adventurous solutions to address climate change things like uh, uh, using volcanoes yeah. um, putting um, uh, chemicals into the atmosphere those are things you can't reverse you get that wrong and you're stuck with it whereas direct air capture you can turn them off yeah that's a, that's amazing and that's a great point so one of the things you know besides uh, using it for uh, to mix it with hydrogen and use it for jet fuel is to put it you know beneath our surface as the same way as we we taken out of the surface now we're trying to put it back in Are there any risks with it or is it just some some natural thing that happens in nature? You know, CO2 should be inside of the earth. So, I mean, so it's, it's a very good question, very relevant question. So, uh, yes, there is CO2 already underground in certain locations around the world as a gas. It's trapped there in a geological formation, for example. So we know that we, with the right geological formations, can store CO2 underground. But you wouldn't do this, for example, uh, I'm, in here, I'm here in British Columbia in Canada. Um, we're in an earthquake zone. Yes. So you wouldn't sequester CO2 as a gas in uh, British Columbia's coast because of the danger of you know, potentially an earthquake. Um, so the most critical thing to understand is you have to choose the right location to put mm. CO2 back underground again. Once you've done that, there has never been, to the best of our knowledge as a company, a single safety incident that has resulted wow. from putting CO2 underground. So it's all about choosing the right location. Um, in the United States, the Department of Energy has done a survey of just the U.S. and the locations where CO2 can be put underground. And they've calculated that there is enough capacity to store a hundred years of the entire planet's emissions just mm. in the United States. Wow. So storage is not the problem if we do it correctly and in the right places. Wow. That's that data that I didn't wow. A hundred years worth, it's amazing. It's it's difficult to wrap my head around the fact that we can I would say engineer our way to to solve this problem. And one of the biggest issues or one of the biggest arguments against this, from my end, when I try to talk with people about climate change and the feasible solutions, is there is this resistance to innovation, right? There is we, we don't want our lifestyles to be disrupted. So I know that one of the biggest feats of carbon engineering is that it doesn't do that. So could you elaborate on how does carbon engineering disrupt in a non-disruptive way, the market? Yeah, so uh, you've, you've obviously heard me say that. I, I, I like to refer to our technology as a non-disruptive, disruptive technology. Yes. And, and what do I mean by that? So I mean it's a disruptive technology because it has the capability to make a really material impact 
on one of the biggest challenges we face as a, as a species right now, which is climate change. However, I say it's non-disruptive. Why? Because, for example, it's going to take us a long time to move off fossil fuels. That is the hard reality of the situation. I, there'll always be some people who say we should immediately abandon fossil fuels, but fossil fuels drive our economy. They drive the health of our people. They drive the development of new nations. We can't just instantaneously replace them with renewable energy. So how do you decarbonize while continuing to use energy and fossil fuels? Well, you clean up the mess afterwards. And that's what direct air capture does. It pulls the CO2 back down, puts it back underground again. So that, in my view, means that our technology is non-disruptive. So we can continue to use fossil fuels while giving ourselves the time to move to renewable electricity and decarbonize at the same time. So it's a non-disruptive, disruptive technology. Yes, I, I love the way that you put it. And it's great to listen to it and for our listeners to, to hear you say it. And disruptive, that, that's a word that disrupts, <laughs> if I may say that. And one of the big things that I keep asking myself is, you know, a company such as, you, as yours and, you know, being a CO2 in such a, a great company, what are some of the unknown unknowns that you think of while trying to implement this technology in the world and in the future? So, you know, I think the number one thing, and I say this to, to anybody who you know, comes to our company to talk about uh, investing into it or something similar, the, the biggest challenge is the recognition that we need to have as a planet that there is a cost to climate change. And if there is a cost to climate change, there is a value to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And if there is a value, we should be prepared to pay for it. Mm. And that is hard for us to take as all collectively. You know, why would I spend money today to solve a problem that will occur in the future? So for us, we have no business and we will be out of business if people don't recognize that it is worth paying to address climate change. So that is the biggest thing that keeps me awake every single night. You will always have a segment of the population who doesn't believe climate change is real. You'll always have politicians and policymakers who are seeking to save money today and cut budgets today. But I go back to a fundamental thing. You know, I said at the start of the, the conversation, I have children and I think our generation has a responsibility. You talk to parents, you talk to grandparents, and they always say the same thing. I'd do anything for my kids. But we're not willing to turn over a certain amount of our current income to solve this problem in the future so that our kids have the same world we have. It's crazy. We have to make the decision to do that. Yes. I absolutely agree. And echoing what you said, uh, that, that brings into my, to my mind your TED talk. And you mentioned, you know, GDP spending and how, how much of, of that we, we spend on Christmas, for example, which is, I think, 3%, correct me if I'm wrong, 3 to 4%. Yeah, I, when we were looking at how to try and find a way to, to make people understand that the amount of money you need to make a material impact in the fight against climate change, we looked at various things that were roughly the same amount of money. And, uh, you know, Christmas, the money we spend on coffee, <laughs> the money we spend on alcohol, those types of things. And, and of course, I'm not suggesting to anybody we should cancel Christmas or people should stop drinking coffee. 
but I'm, I'm trying to make people aware of the fact that it's really not that big a deal. Yeah. Um, and again, look at the current virus. Governments around the world correctly have immediately mobilized and spent money on addressing this problem. A similar amount of money would address climate change. Wow. But because we can't see it today, because it's in the future and it's not threatening us now like the virus threatens us now, it's not happened. Yes. And that that's that's the biggest problem. That's the biggest problem and I and I shared it with you. And you know, I, I don't have kids now. I and I don't plan to have them anytime soon. But I do <laughs> <laughs> I do think of there is no better way of spending my time here on earth than trying to make it as better or as equal as I received it. You know, for me it's a it's a different context than your generation or our past generations. But doing doing something in accordance to that is is something that I look up to and and it's one of the biggest difficulties in the human mind. Try to wrap our hands around that our children will we we would like them to to flourish in an earth that they can have the decision between spending their time uh, on a Christmas Eve or spending their time having a beer with their friends. But you know, climate change threats every single part of our lives. And that's that's one of the biggest insights that I've had. Without solving climate change, there would be no cost of opportunities to do anything else, right? Yeah, and I think um, you know, I think we are reaching a tipping point in recognition that we have to do something about climate change. Um, you know, public awareness, the flight shaming, uh, everything Greta Thunberg has done, um, the uh, government studies by the United Nations, the IPCC, and others. All of these things are building more and more awareness. You're seeing companies like Microsoft and Amazon committing to be net zero or even net negative in the case of Microsoft. You're seeing governments around the world starting to say, we will be net zero by 2050. What you haven't seen yet is the plan to get there. Hmm. It's, it's great to set a target, but then you've got to put a plan in place. So I'm hoping that's the next step. And you know, I hope that as people look at the impact of the virus and we all say, God, I wish we'd spent more money on setting up um, uh, uh, investigations into, into, um, into viruses and, and how to prevent them. And we all wish we had that capability in advance. Uh, we need to do the same thing on climate change. We need to set it up now. Yes. And one of the, the biggest arguments of the causes from this virus has been, you know, climate change accelerated it. And it's not a, just a, It's not something that it's impossible to think of, right? There, there's legitimate threats to, to the way we live in, and climate change. Solving it can address many of those. And you, you mentioned people and you mentioned citizens. So what can citizens do to, to help policymakers become more aware of this problem and, and big companies? How, how can we all become involved? So I, I think, um, again, it's a great question. I think um, there's two things. First of all is awareness. Uh, you know, get educated. There are solutions to climate change. You know, not just technologies like ours. There are a whole suite of technologies that can make a significant difference. Um, and then the second thing is we collectively as a society, we need to make carbon footprints like uh, I'll choose drink driving. Hmm. You know, drink driving is totally socially unacceptable <laughs> these days. And, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it, or maybe a little bit further than that, it, it wasn't. You know, people would go to the pub or restaurant and then drive home. 
<laughs> now it's just socially unacceptable. We need to make carbon footprints socially unacceptable. So, for example, writing to your the brands that you like and use and saying, I won't buy your brand anymore unless you become carbon neutral. And growing the pressure on, on companies and then governments as well through the ballot box um, and through advocacy. Those are the things. I personally believe that companies and individuals can make this change faster. Governments take time. You have to wait for a cycle of voting. Then along comes a government. They have to work through a process. Everything takes time to put policy and, and so on in place. A company like a Microsoft can announce that they're going to start going carbon neutral and immediately start putting the policies in place and the practices in place. So I encourage people to be advocates for requiring the companies, the politicians, the municipalities, the cities that they work for, live for, and, and are part of, uh, and demand that they become net zero. Wow. Thank you for, for, for your answer. And just adding up to that is everyone wants to, I, I, I dare to say that most of us want progress and want to improve things and just addressing these issues, a pressing one, and also one that, as my beginning question with you was, having a, an eyesight for the long haul and trying to, to share with our kids our own experiences and my future kids, <laughs> the ones that I are not here yet, <laughs> is try to share them the opportunity to flourish as human beings. And even though this is some sort of an invisible um, thread, which I don't believe it is, it's, it's necessary that we keep pushing an agenda of well-being for everyone. So Steve, I don't want to take more time off of you. Is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up? Uh, let me just give you one more example. I, I, think it, I think it's useful to kind of let people think of how to do address climate change and, and that it's possible. And the example that I, that I give uh, is part of the TED Talk that you watched is water treatment. Yes. Um, so, you know, a hundred years ago, um, a couple of generations back, water was killing people in cities. And, you know, it was a huge health hazard. You could see it. People next door would, would get ill and die because of cholera or typhoid. So then we invented the technology for to treat water. And now every government in the world, with a small number of exceptions and locations, provide clean water. And all of us, as citizens of the world, when we visit somewhere, we expect that the water won't kill us. <laughs> It's become a government-provided capability. Yes. Well, here in the 21st century, it's the air that is going to kill our way of life. The atmosphere, the climate change is going to make a massive difference to us. But we have the technologies to solve it. So we need to do the same thing. Instead of a water treatment industry in the 21st century, we need an air treatment industry. And we need governments to, to put that in place. And we've done it before. We did it with water. Water was everywhere. People everywhere on the planet use water. We solved that problem we can solve this one too. Wow. Wow. Thank you for saying that. And just to, to, to wrap up, I just want to say that I really look up to, to you and listening that you're in it for the long haul gives me encouragement, even though I'm still young and still in the process of getting a career, having people within my circle of people who I look up to, you're one of those. And carbon engineering is as well, just a encouragement that you people give us 
give people like me to to create something and work on something bigger than us, which is amazing. It just I'm very grateful with you for that. So thank you, thank you, Steve. Well, thank you for your time, Alex. Thank you for your interest, and uh, best of luck. Thanks. Take care. If you find this conversation insightful, consider subscribing to the podcast at any podcast feed you use and share it with a friend. We truly appreciate your support. Our new awesome music is by Joe Lyle. More info can be found at joelyledrums.com. Hosted and produced by Alex Levy. <laughs>